Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Today's episode of the Nick Bob Podcast is brought to you by my good friends at Pella Windows and Doors. It is springtime and you've probably been putting off a lot of the projects around your home, whether it's some new windows or a new door. Now is the time to turn your window and door remodeling dreams into a reality with Pella because a new set of windows or a new door can do a lot of things for you and change the vibe, the feeling, the look of your home. Plus, it can add value and make your home more energy efficient. Check them out online, PellaOmaha.com. That's PellaOmaha.com. And the Nick Bob Podcast is brought to you by my pals at Runza. You know, we all know about the greatness of, you know, the Runza sandwich, the amazing burgers, the best fries on the planet, but... Runza also has two of my favorite salads. You got the Southwest chicken salad with the spicy ranch, yummy in the tummy, and the sweet berry chicken salad. You got dried cranberries popping off fresh greens, a perfect complement of rich feta cheese and walnuts, and creamy poppy seed dressing. It is delicious. So get out to Runza today. Try salad. Runza makes it all better. All right, it is uh, Monday, March 29th, and unfortunately... Creighton season is over. Uh, the Jays fell to now 29-0 Gonzaga, 83-65 to in the Sweet 16. And here's what I got on tap for you for this podcast. I'm going to give you my thoughts on that uh, on Creighton's loss to Gonzaga, kind of what went wrong, what I saw from the Jays in that game. Uh, then, you know, with obviously this, this season ending, you know, it's time to kind of reflect on, and I'll give you kind of what I'll remember most about this really special core group of Bishop, you know, Zegarowski, Ballock, Jefferson, and Mahoney, um, because boy, they they leave behind quite a legacy at Creighton. So I'll get into that. And then I got some emails I want to read and discuss regarding, yeah, I had someone email me how many Creighton players I think come back next year. Uh, I had someone ask me if I think Gonzaga is the best college basketball team in the past decade. And then... Uh, got some interesting. Got an interesting email regarding the Pac-12 and their incredible performance so far in the NCAA tournament. We'll dive into all of that, but first, let's start with uh, with Creighton and Gonzaga. Um, you know, it is it's it's hard to sit here in my podcast studio and say that I'm surprised with the outcome of that game, right? I, I thought, uh, to be honest with you, I thought there was a I thought there was a better chance Creighton was going to lose by 15 or 20 than win the game. And that's not because I don't believe in the in the Creighton Blue Jays. You guys know I do. I just think Gonzaga, you know, really talented team, not a great matchup for Creighton. Creighton was going to need their A game to 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 win it. And certainly watching that, Creighton didn't have their A game. Um for, first of all, there, there's kind of a lot to unpack with this. Um so so Creighton's defensive game plan was 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 this. Their plan was to pack the paint. And really sell out to taking away Drew Timmy in the post and Jalen Suggs' ability to kind of get downhill, get into the paint, and attack the rim. So they were going to sell out to packing the paint on those two guys. And really the only dude they were going to get stretched out on was Corey Kispert. A- amazing three-point shooter. They were they were going to, you know, had a, a no-help responsibility 
um, you are staying attached to Corey Kispert, trying to give him no easy threes at all. And so that plan that, that, that I just laid out to you requires you to kind of dare two people to beat you. Joel Ayayi and Andrew Nemhart. Because you're really selling out. You're digging the ball out of the post for Timmy. You're, you're, you're maybe sitting in that driving gap a little more for Jalen Suggs. You're staying attached to Corey Kispert. There's, other two, there's two other guys on the floor, Ayayi and, Nimmer, and Nemhart. You kind of you kind of daring those two guys say, "Hey, man, you you two are gonna have to gonna have to step up, make some shots." And guess what? Those two guys stepped up, and made shots. Nemhard and Ayayi finished the game twelve of twenty two from the floor for thirty points combined between the two of them. And in the first half in particular, those two guys were great. They, I mean, they were really really good, combining for five of ten from three, which really hurt because in all reality. If you look at the first half, Creighton executed their plan pretty well and did a pretty good job on Drew Timmy, Jalen Suggs, and Corey Kispert. Kispert didn't make a single three in the first half. Creighton corralled Suggs for the most part. And Drew Timmy really only got his got it rolling when Christian Bishop went to the bench with foul trouble. So really, they, you know, if you're going into a game saying, we got to do this, this, and this, they checked a lot of those boxes. But the problem was Ayayi and Nemhard made shots. Again, for Creighton to win this game, they were going to sell out to stopping Gonzaga's big three of Kispert, Suggs, and Timmy, and they couldn't afford the role guy, couldn't afford for the role guys for Gonzaga to have big days. And unfortunately, they did. When you're playing a good team, it's hard to take away everything, especially when Creighton's a good defensive team, but they're not like Baylor, where they can just say, "All right, everybody, mano y mano, lock up with your man, let's go." That, you know, that's unfortunately not quite how they're built. That's not quite how they're built. But even within all that, you know, Creighton kind of hung in there for the first half. And in fact, they had some chances to really get things close and put some pressure on Gonzaga. I thought if you rewatch that game and, th- and, and really look at it, I thought in the moment and then I was, I, I was thinking more about it. I thought Creighton's window, Pella window, shouts out to Pella. I thought Creighton's window of opportunity to make it a game and really put pressure on Gonzaga was from the 8.30 mark to about the 5.30 mark of the first half. Because for three minutes of game time there, the score was stuck on 32-25. to Gonzaga was up. And during that stretch, Creighton was getting stops. Like, they, they were getting stops, and they were having numerous opportunities down seven with the ball to score and cut into this lead, and Creighton just couldn't score. And a couple of things really hurt during that stretch. That was the stretch when Christian Bishop was on the bench with two fouls, and during that time, Ryan Kalkbrenner was in, and unfortunately, he missed two layups. So that hurt. But I thought the biggest thing that stood out to me, I thought Greg McDermott did a really good job in terms of a game plan and all that sort of sorts of things. But if there was one thing that I, I thought Greg McDermott maybe didn't handle well or a decision I maybe disagreed with, and again, it's easy for me sitting in a, the basement studios of 1620 calling the game on the radio, you know, you got all the answers when that's the case, right? But I said it in the moment. If you were listening to me on the call, John Bishop can verify it. I said it in the moment. I thought Greg McDermott made a big mistake during that stretch. So 
Denzel Mahoney got a loose ball and called timeout. He dove on the floor and got a loose ball called timeout at the 750 mark. Marcus Zagorowski was, had already been on the bench for a little bit, resting because it was trying to steal him a minute or two to, to catch his breath. And instead of bringing Marcus back in after that timeout, again, Creighton had the ball. Instead of bringing Marcus back in after that timeout, he continued to sit Marcus Zagorowski on the bench. And what was extra frustrating about it was the second the play started, Zagorowski went to the scorer's table. So you were bringing him back in. Why not? Br- you have the ball. Why not bring it back in? If you watch it on, if you watch it again, Creighton comes out of the timeout, and the second they inbound the ball, Zagorowski goes to the scorer's table. Why not just bring him in? Why not? Why not just bring him in? Because what ended up happening was he continued to to sit on the sidelines at the scores table and there wasn't a whistle for two plus minutes. And that was the two plus minutes where Creighton had numerous opportunities to cut into the lead and your best player, your best scorer wasn't on the floor. And to me, that was the window. Creighton was ice cold. Because in all reality, Creighton's two most consistent offensive players have been Christian Bishop and or Marcus Zagorowski and Christian Bishop, and both those guys were off the floor. Bishop had two fouls. Okay, whatever. But I, I thought, I thought having sitting Marcus in that spot was a mistake. Now, again, if you're Greg McDermott and the staff, you're not anticipating a two-plus minute stretch without a whistle, right? But I just don't understand. Like you have the ball. You're going to sub him in. You sub him in literally. So it's not like you were subbing him in right as that play starts. Why not just bring him in? But during that stretch, Creighton was ice cold. Marcus wasn't on the floor. And again, that was when Gonzaga was cold. And Creighton had numerous opportunities to cut into that seven-point lead. I just thought that was a mistake. And again, it was unfortunate that when Creighton had that window of opportunity to cut into the lead, both Bishop and Zagorowski were on the bench. Great teams like Gonzaga aren't going to give you too many opportunities to get it to to stay into the game or win the game. And I felt like that stretch was the stretch that was Creighton's big opportunity to really make it interesting. Because you know what? Marcus was kind of rolling in the first half. All in all, during that stretch, Creighton went one for 12 from the floor during that little three-minute series there. And, if, and then eventually Gonzaga was able to kind of get their groove back and they pushed the lead out to 10 at halftime. And so you go from, you think about it, you go from down seven with the ball numerous times to really make it close and cut into that lead to down 10 at halftime. And now you're kind of on the ropes. Now now there's a ton of pressure on you to, to start the, sac- the second half well. Because you're kind of whenever it, you were always kind of in danger zone when it got to around ten. A lot of pressure on you starts the second half. Well, and Creighton didn't. Gonzaga pushed the lead from ten to fourteen points in the first four minute segment of the second half, and in all reality, it was night night. The route was on. Creighton kind of melted. Creighton lost their energy and and focus on defense in the second half. I mean, Gonzaga will kind of do that to you, and a lot of that also had to do with with Creighton's inability to make any shots. 
right? Creighton was going to need a really good day shooting the ball to beat a team that averages 92 points per game like Gonzaga. I mean, they're the best offensive team in the, in the country. And they were ice cold. They were ice cold. Zagorowski, or you know, the, you look at the team. The, Creighton goes what five of twenty-two from three, or five of twenty-three from three. Marcus Zagorowski went three for seven. The rest of the team went two for sixteen. And then here's the thing: also, you got to think about because Creighton couldn't make shots, Creighton was in defensive transition a ton especially in the second half. So if you're constantly missing shots, Gonzaga's getting rebounds and they're outletting it and running at you, you're not able to set your defense a ton. And that got Gonzaga in a groove and and rolling and things just kind of snowballed for there. The reality is, against Gonzaga, with this matchup, number one offensive team in the country, number one at Ken Palm, 92 points per game, Creighton couldn't afford to have a bad three-point shooting game. And they couldn't afford for Christian Bishop to get into foul trouble, and both happened. Again, Creighton, 5 of 23 from three. And in particular, Mitch Mitch Ballock, Damian Jefferson, Denzel Mahoney, they really had a bad day. They were combined 2 of 15 from three. Couldn't afford that. And then Creighton couldn't afford Christian Bishop to get into foul trouble. Because that, you know, Creighton loses a lot of their pop offensively, and that got Drew Timmy rolling. You know, and it's just, you, you go right on down the line. All of the things that Creighton absolutely had to have happen didn't happen. And all the things that Creighton couldn't afford to have happen all went the wrong way for Creighton. I mean, listen, Creighton was a 13 or 14 point underdog for a reason in this game. And Gonzaga is now 29 and 0 on the and on the brink of making history for a reason. You were going to need a dang near a perfect day to, to to win that game. And Creighton was far from perfect. And that what is that's what was was just so frustrating to me. You know, like I was I was driving to the game to to I was driving to call the game on the radio. So I'm driving to the 1620 of the Zone Studios in Omaha to to call the game on the radio. And the thing I kept thinking about on the drive, I kept saying to myself, hey, you know what? Like, win or lose, I just want Creighton to play how they're capable of playing. E- even if that means they lose by 15, whatever. That that I can swallow way easier. I'd imagine Jays fans can swallow that way easier. What gets tough to swallow is just is, is not having your A game at all. Hell, Creighton didn't even have their C game, in my opinion. I mean, I didn't think Creighton played well at all. And now some would say, hello, Gonzaga had a lot to do with that. And yes, I mean, that's obviously true to a certain degree. But I don't know. I mean, I guess from an offensive standpoint, I didn't really feel like Gonzaga was just suffocating Creighton and owning Creighton and totally disjoining Creighton and totally making it really tough on Creighton offensively. I didn't think that. That's the one thing about this Gonzaga team that I'm a little like, I don't think they're great defensively. They're good. I don't think they're great. I felt like Creighton, for the most part, got the shots that they kind of wanted to get. They just missed them. So that's what's what's frustrating. Now, I get it. You certainly aren't going to make every shot you take. You're not going to go 23 for 23 from three. 
But, you know, Denzel Mahoney, Mitch Ballock, Damian Jefferson, those guys got pretty good looks, man. They got pretty good looks. And they just didn't make them. And again, your margin for error when you're taking on a team like Gonzaga is pretty slim. You know, you can you can go five for twenty three and beat a beat Providence or beat uh you know beat UConn or beat whoever like, but Gonzaga with how they're built offensively, you it's going to be hard for you to survive that kind of day. And that's not just that's not just Creighton. Like that's anybody. I don't care if they're playing Baylor, if they're playing uh if if they're playing Michigan. I don't care if they're playing USC. I don't care like you you. It's going to be hard for if you don't shoot it well. Like, you're going to have a hard time beating Gonzaga because they are going to score. So, listen, did I expect Creighton to beat Gonzaga? No. But did I expect the game to maybe look a little different? I did, maybe a little bit. Maybe a little bit. Certainly, certainly nothing to uh, to hang your, your, your head about losing to Gonzaga, right? I mean, the reality is nobody was picking Creighton to win this game. I mean, you comb through all of the internet and all the random websites. Hi, sportsfan.edu.com.gov. I think nobody. Like, there was, there was, I didn't see one pundit anywhere, any publication, any outlet pick Creighton to win this game. And when the brackets were revealed, let's all be honest for a second. When you saw you were in the same, Creighton was in the same region as, as Gonzaga and would cross paths with Gonzaga in the Sweet 16, I think most people saw the Sweet 16 as most likely the ceiling because of that. Certainly wish Creighton could have played better and made a few more shots because it really would have been interesting if Creighton would have been able to put a little bit of pressure on Gonzaga and just hang around. That was kind of my the thing I told you in my game preview. It's like Gonzaga's only been in one game decided by single digits. You got to find a way to just hang in there, hang in there, and just see if you can kind of steal one late if they're uncomfortable in a close game late. So I just, it would have been, been interesting to see if Creighton could have done that. And unfortunately, that didn't happen. They were just overmatched and, uh, as the game wore on. So Creighton, you know, ends up coming short and loses to Gonzaga, just like 28 other teams have this so far this season. That's kind of how I, I saw that game and, and what stood out to me. All right, hey, coming up next, I'm going to give you my predictions on who's coming back from this Creighton roster, plus what I'll remember most about this core group for Creighton in this two-year run. But first, let's talk about White Castle, Pella, and Runza. All right, let's take a quick break from the podcast to talk about White Castle Roofing. You know, one of the best decisions I've made was calling White Castle Roofing when my roof had some hail damage back in the day to my old house in Omaha. I needed experts. I needed people I can trust. That's White Castle. White Castle Roofing made the entire process so easy and so smooth, and they did a great job. They communicate every step of the way in their crews. They're knowledgeable. They care about the details, and cleanup is a top priority. So if you need experts, you can trust White House Roofing is the answer. In fact, I'm dealing with a leak in my roof in my new house, and you know who I called immediately? Of course, White Castle. Ben from White Castle came to the house last week, took a look at things, and we already got the ball rolling on what to do next. When it comes to your roof, you need people you can trust, and trust me, you can trust the good people at White Castle. Check them out, whitecastleroofing.com. White Castle Roofing, built with trust, proven by time. 
and the Nick Bob Podcast is brought to you by my friends at Runza. There is nothing better than hearing from an old high school football teammate like my former offensive lineman, Brett Oltman, on Twitter, where he went out and he tried the Ruben Runza and loved it. That's what I'm talking about, baby. And my dad, my father, he got his Ruben Runza game right. He gave it two thumbs up. Again, Ruben Runza is available at all Runza locations. It's everything you love about a Ruben wrapped up inside the greatness of a Runza sandwich. So make sure you stop out to Runza, try the brand new Ruben Runza. And speaking of Runzas, don't forget that every Runza is made to order, meaning you can add anything in the kitchen within reason to add on a Runza since every one starts as an original Runza. You can add pickles or ketchup or ranch, whatever. It is up to you. So whether you get a Reuben Runza or get creative and add something to an original Runza, you know it's going to be delicious. So head out to Runza today, and while you're there, tell them your buddy, your pal, Nick sent you and the Nick Bob podcast is brought to you by my friends at Pella Windows and Door. You know, when it's time to get a new set of windows or a new door, you got to go with Pella. Why? Because they can provide window and door solutions to any home. They can turn your window and door modeling dreams into a reality. And because the people are great, Vince and Steve and Clint and Brian, the whole gang, they are all fantastic. And you know what else is fantastic? Knowing that you're going to be working with Pella and only Pella the entire time. Do you realize that when you work with some other window companies, all of a sudden questions pop up like who, who's going to install it? Who's going to pre-finish it? Who's doing that? And before you know it, you're working with like four or five different people. Oh my God, ugh. You want the convenience and simplicity of working with one company, not three or four. That is Pella. Check them out on the web, PellaOmaha.com. That's PellaOmaha.com. Dot com back to the podcast. Okay, so season is over for the Creighton Blue Jays. And, you know, again, technically all these guys could come back because of the NCAA rule of this was kind of a free year for everybody. We'll see what ends up happening. But I think, at least in the moment, it feels like this was the end of a pretty special two-year run for Creighton. Right? This core group of Marcus Zagorowski, Mitch Ballock, Damian Jefferson, Denzel Mahoney, Christian Bishop pretty special legacy that those that that those guys are leaving behind 46 and 16 in two years the last two years two banners raised in the arena Big East regular season champs last year sweet 16 banner will go up in the rafters after this year this that that group raised the bar for Creighton basketball what a legacy man and you know to me it's interesting that this group, sure, they put on some pretty special offensive displays over the last two years, right? There were some spurts offensively from a transition standpoint, alley-oops, long threes, amazing passing, all that stuff that were just like, holy, wow. But I think where this group really raised the bar and what I'll remember most about them was their toughness. So how about this? So uh, let you behind the curtain a little bit. I, uh, you know, because obviously I did a, a solo sports talk radio show uh, for, gosh, from if almost what, seven, eight years, whatever it was, eight years. And I, so I, I actually, I write out all my solo, I did it for my radio show and all my solo pots. Like right now I'm looking at a, at a, at a, Word document, I, I kind of write out. I have a script. You know, it's not like I have to read it verbatim. I kind of got bullet points and all that stuff. But I write out all my solo pots. And I was, when I was sitting down to do this pot, I was like, let me pull up my Creighton season preview 
Word document heading into the season two years ago. So heading into not this season, but last season. So Creighton was coming off there. They had just they lost in the quarterfinals to of the NIT to TCU. And so heading into so Zegarowski was going to be a sophomore, Ballock was going to be a junior, all that like heading into not this season, but last season. I was like, let me just let me pull that document up and I'm I'm combing through it and looking at it. And I'm like, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of things I was like, okay, yeah, I remember that. But how about this? There was a section in it where I, I talked about my biggest my concerns for 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 the team. Here's what I wrote. I'm just gonna read it to you. Here's what I wrote two years ago about this core group, Damian Jefferson, Christian Bishop, Mitch Ballock, Marcus Zegarowski. Here, here's Tyshawn Alexander would have been on that team. You know, all the, but this core group, here's, here's what I wrote two years ago. I wrote, the number one thing that plagues this program is toughness. Creighton really needs an infusion of toughness in a variety of ways. A part of their inability to win close games or finish any season strong can be traced back to that. Finding some teeth in their defense, getting stops, grinding out wins. The game has a way of slowing down in March, and Creighton struggles when it's ugly right now. Creighton has the skill, has the shooting, has the depth, has the coaching. I think the big key ingredient that is missing is toughness. That's what I wrote about this program and this team heading in to the season two years ago. How about that? And here we are two years later, 46 and 16 in two seasons, Big East regular season championship banner hung, and a Sweet 16 banner will go up into the rafters. How about that? It was all true, too. What I tell me, you go back, like everything I wrote there was true. The number one thing that this program had lacked that I thought held them back from, from winning a conference title and most importantly, getting to the Sweet 16 was toughness. That was the, the one thing that was eluding this program. And toughness is kind of all-encompassing. Winning close games. Winning on nights when you don't shoot it well. Winning on nights where, where your threes aren't falling and you can't get out and run in transition. Finding a way to win ugly. Winning with your defense. Getting the big stop. Getting the big rebound. Getting the big loose ball. Creighton, for years, and this might sound weird, but here, like Creighton, for years, felt like they were a program or a team that had to play well to win. And again, I know that sounds weird, but it's true. Like if if the game was physical, the game was rough, and it was the game was in the 60s, and the game wasn't free-flowing and finesse, and it wasn't in the 80s or the 90s, it felt like more often than not, they struggled to win. When, when the game became a grinder, they, they struggled. When the game was close late, they ended up on the wrong side quite a bit. So, like I wrote two years ago, the number, the number one thing that was holding this program back, in my opinion, was toughness. So I feel like in a, in a weird way, that's how I'll remember this core group. They raised the bar for Creighton basketball 
because they raised the bar on toughness. Tyson Alexander taking on a, a defensive stopper role and becoming an elite on-ball defender two years ago. Denzel Mahoney then accepting that this team needed him to fill that. Tyshawn Void to become a defensive stopper. Damian Jefferson just being tough as shit and guarding multiple positions. Christian Bishop continuing to work in the weight room and grow as a solid rim protector and fighter in the post. Marcus and Mitch fighting and scrapping like hell all the time. This team, that group this year, if you really go look at it, they won a ton of grinders. They really did. Because to be honest, this year's this team this year was more inconsistent offensively than you maybe realize. They weren't quite as electric in the open floor as they were a year ago. They weren't quite as consistent shooting it from three as they were a year ago. I, I feel like, honestly, more often than not this year, Creighton was winning grinders more so than hanging 88 on everybody. So to me, that's what I'll remember most about this, this team and this core group. Not only did they check the box that was unchecked with the program in terms of accomplishments, Sweet 16. I think they did that because they checked the box that was unchecked with the program's DNA. Toughness. That group was tough. And again, when we think of toughness, we conjure up images of like Bill Lambeer and Rick Mahorn, like, you know, hard fouls and elbow and a guy. Man, that's not like that. That's not what it is really in basketball. This group embodied everything you would want from a toughness standpoint and from just from a characteristic standpoint. They're tough. They're unselfish. They worked their ass off. They were tight knit. I just had so much fun watching this group play, man. You know, I mean, I've been around the program for almost 20 years. And, you know, lots of, I've seen lots of great players. They've come through this program and helped it. Helped it a lot. But very few actually have come through and raised the bar. Raised the standard. This group did that. There is a new standard around Creighton basketball. And that standard was set by this group. And I know, I know a lot of those guys, you know, they're upset and they're sad that it's over and they're sad they lost. And I get it, man. But man, when the when the dust settles and they reflect, they just got so much to be proud of. Those banners will hang forever. Big East champs, Sweet 16. And every time I look up and I, I see those banners from here on out, I'll be reminded of this special core group. Marcus Zagorowski, Mitch Ballock, Damian Jefferson, Denzel Mahoney, Christian Bishop, the, the special, special group. Because, you know, in, in life and really anything you do, you want to leave something better than when you found it. You want to leave something 
better in better condition than, than when you found it. That core group can rest assured that they are leaving the Creighton basketball program in a better place and in a better condition than when they arrived. That is quite a legacy. All right, we'll uh, we'll kind of wrap up the pot. I got three emails I want to I want to dive into, and then we'll get out of here. Three emails. Remember, you can email me nick at nickbaugh.com. Got three emails here. The first one is from Brian. He emails and says, Nick, how do you explain the Pac-12 doing so well in the NCAA tournament? It, yeah, I mean, as we speak, so again, we're recording this on a Monday morning, there are three Pac-12 teams in the Sweet 16, Oregon State, UCLA, and USC. Oregon State beat Loyola Chicago, UCLA beat Alabama, and USC beat Oregon last night. And in all reality, I thought Oregon was good enough that maybe if they don't run into USC, they advance. Like if they play Syracuse or Houston or Arkansas or Oral Roberts or something, like they could have advanced. So, I mean, there could have been four teams still alive. But still, a conference everyone didn't think much of the Pac-12, has three teams in the Elite Eight. I mean, imagine imagine two weeks ago if someone would have told you, hey, the Pac-12 will have three teams in the Elite Eight and the Big, Child, Big Ten will have one. You'd have thought that person was high. I'm like, what? You sure you don't mean Big 12? You mean Pac-12? My, my thoughts are this. First of all, and I feel like you always got to like begin any conversation with the NCAA tournament, like pointing this out. In a one-game scenario for 40 minutes on a neutral floor, anything can happen in the game of basketball. And you see that all the time in, in the NCAA tournament. So you got to start with that. Again, I, I said this last week. There's a reason in the NBA playoffs they play a seven-game series. So you got to kind of start with that. That's not necessarily to take away from any of the results, but, I mean, it's a part of it. But here's, here's my thought. I got two kind of big thoughts with it. I think the Pac-12 surprise, their surprise great performance in the tournament, and then the Big Ten's poor surprise performance in the NCAA tournament, speak to the power of perception and how you view something heading in. I kind of talked about this last week when trying to explain what happened to the Big Ten and how poor they performed in the, in the first weekend of the NCAA tournament with a limited sample size for the non-con. I think perception ended up playing a larger role than we realize in how we viewed teams and how we viewed conferences. Think about it. People went into this season with the notion and with the narrative and with the understanding and with the perception that the Big Ten was a great league and the Pac-12 was not a good league. So any events that unfolded just furthered that narrative. I think that played a big, big role. Perception heading in. And then the other thing, and maybe this is the biggest one. The other thing is eyeballs. I don't really know what you can do about that. But I thought Mick Cronin, UCLA head coach, put it perfectly. 
He said, this was, this was from a story a, a handful of days ago, when kind of asked about the Pac-12 and, you know, the, the perception around it and, and them, you know, the Pac-12 performing well and all that stuff and the surprise of it all. He said, quote, teams in the Pac-12 play hard. We have excellent coaching. It's more competitive physically than the rest of the country knows because most people are sleeping when we play. Let me repeat that last part. Most people are sleeping when we play. Unfortunately, he's right on that last point. Most people are sleeping when the Pac-12 is playing. You know, it's funny. We, we joke. We joke about, hey, Pac-12 after dark, baby. Right? Whether it's college football, college basketball, like, ooh, all right, a little Pac-12 after dark. Here we go. We joke about that. That's kind of a problem if you really unpack it. Ooh, Pac-12 after dark. I'm sorry, when, when you were tipping, when you were tipping at 9 p.m. Central Time or kicking off at, at 10 p.m. Eastern Time, that's not a recipe to get a lot of people to watch your games. And again, I don't, I don't quite know what the answer is because, I mean, you want people at games on a weekday, right? So a 7 p.m. local time tip is usually ideal for, for, you know, USC fans to get to a game or Oregon fans to get to a game or whatever, Stanford fans. But man, when possible on the weekends, I think the Pac-12 needs to really look long and hard at finding a way to get some, some better time slots where, where maybe some, you get some more eyeballs. Because think about it, there's a reason that during the, the college football season, the Pac-12 started to explore 9 a.m. local time kickoffs, which would be noon on the East Coast. They're trying to get more people to watch. And maybe the Pac-12 needs to look into that a little bit for, for college basketball. And I get there's a lot of different moving parts. It's not as easy as you think to just say, this game's playing at 10 o'clock a.m. local time. I mean, you got television partners, Fox, ESPN, inventory. You got to go. Usually, some of those TV networks they put, you know, in terms of the Saturday or Sunday afternoon prime TV spots, you get usually reserved for Big Ten or ACC or Big Twelve and even Big East teams. But I think the Pac-12 needs to really look at a lot of things moving forward. I mean, first of all, their conference network, the Pac-12 network, is by far the worst of any of the conference networks. It's in the fewest homes. Its reach is bad. I mean, you can't even find it. Like it, And that stuff makes a difference. That stuff makes a difference. Along with when you play. I really think exploring different tip times is something to consider. I mean, again, Pac-12 after dark can continue to be a thing we all joke about, but what Pac-12 after dark is really saying is very few people are actually watching this game. <laughs> Oregon, Stanford, little Pac-12 after dark, baby. Uh, okay, what, 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 you know what that's really saying? Everyone's asleep. No one's watching. That's not good. That's not good. 
All right, uh, next email is from Tim. He says, uh, Nick, is Gonzaga the best college basketball team you've seen in the past decade? You, you know what's what's weird is you would think with being now 29-0 and and being th- three wins away from being the first undefeated national champion since 1976 that they must be the best team in a long time. More than a decade, right? But I don't, I don't, I don't really see them quite like that. I think they're, I think they're really good. But like, for instance, I think the, I thought the 2018 Villanova team was better than this Gonzaga team. I thought that 2018 Nova team was one of the best college basketball teams I've seen in, I mean, now it helps when you see them in person. You know, and maybe if I saw Gonzaga in person, I would feel different, whatever. I think basketball is the one sport, like, you do get a different sense when you are courtside and you see the size, you see the speed, you see the quickness, all that. But that 2018 Nova team was one of the best college basketball teams I've seen in the past 20 years. Jalen Brunson, Mikhail Bridges, Dante DiVincenzo, Amari Spellman, Eric Pascal, Phil Booth. I mean... Brunson, Bridges, Brunson, Bridges, DiVincenzo, Pascal, and Spellman are all in the NBA. All of them. They're, they're basically top five guys, all NBA guys. All in the league. Five of them. I mean, you, you go through the last 20, 25 years of college basketball, how many... It's, it's pretty rare to see five NBA dudes on a team. Because I, I look at Gonzaga, I think Gonzaga probably has two, maybe three. If Drew Timmy can make it, it's always so hard to judge big guys anymore and how they'll translate to the next level. I think Jalen Suggs and Corey Kispert are NBA guys. Timmy, maybe. but that. So I see two, maybe three pros. No, don't get me wrong. I think Again, I think this Gonzaga team is really, really, really good. But for me, if you put the 2018 Nova team on a neutral floor against this Gonzaga team, I'm taking Nova in a heartbeat. I mean, hell, I even think some of the Gonzaga teams of the past four or five years were just as good as this team. They just didn't win it. Brandon Clark, Rui Hachimura, the the how about the Gonzaga team that lost to North Carolina in the in the national championship game? Like they've had some great, great teams. So again, I think they're really good. But I don't think they're the best team I've seen even in the past five years. That's that's how I'd answer that question. All right, third and final email is from uh, William. He says, Nick, how many Creighton guys do you think will come back next year? Thanks, love the pot. Thanks, William. Okay, so again, like I said, everybody has that free year and all players in college bas- basketball can come back if they want. So I have no inside information on this um, and and who knows what these guys will end up doing. But obviously the guys we're really wondering about are, are you know, Marcus Zagorowski, Mitch Ballock, Denzel Mahoney, and Damian Jefferson. I don't think we're really wondering about Christian Bishop, although who the hell knows. But I don't, when I, when I assess this... Uh, this question, those are the four guys I focus on. Zagorowski, Ballock, Denzel Mahoney, Damian Jefferson. Three seniors and then Marcus. Here's kind of how I would I look at it. So I think Denzel Mahoney and Damian Jefferson are, are for sure not coming back. That would be my guess. I'd be, I'd be surprised if those guys came back. Both those guys are fifth-year seniors. 
Both those guys flirted with the NBA last year, thus kind of flirted with starting their professional careers a year ago. I think that's what they'll both do. I think both those guys are going to turn the page. They're going to start their professional basketball careers. That's my prediction for both for Jefferson and Mahoney. Marcus Zegarowski is probably in the most interesting spot. Because if you look at his season, like, you know, this guy was, he was, he was, you know, named the preseason Big East player of the year. He was a preseason first team All-American from a lot of outlets heading into the year. And because he was kind of recovering from that torn meniscus injury and, and for a good chunk of the year, I don't think he was fully himself and fully locked in and loaded uh, from an ability standpoint. And because of that, he got off to a slow start and he kind of became an afterthought for some people. But he finished the year really strong. From basically that Villanova game at home that I did with Tim Brando, where he had, I think he had 25 points in a win on February 13th. From that game on, Zegarowski was really good. And then he had a really solid showing in the NCAA tournament. He put together three pretty good games, pretty impressive games. So he finished the season strong. But you look at you look at most mock drafts and and all that stuff, and he's either a second round guy or undrafted. So you would you would look at that and think, hey, come back, ball out for another year, raise your draft stock, there you go. You know, on paper that makes sense, but I don't know if it, if if it necessarily does, because there are three things with that you got to think about. The first one. The older you get, the longer you're in college, as silly and stupid as it sounds, the more NBA teams maybe hold that against you. They're not, they're not necessarily – the NBA draft has become a potential draft. They're more into the 18-year-old that has a whole bunch of upside rather than maybe like a 22-year-old that's a finished product that you kind of like, ah, I see what he can do. It's kind of that power of the unknown. Ooh, man, look at him, man. He's 18. He's 6'7". He's long. He can't really shoot. He can't really dribble. But, man, look at that 6'7". He's long. <laughs> it's, I know it's kind of stupid. That's how it is. The, the second thing is I kind of think he might be in that, that weird area as a prospect where his stock kind of is what it is. Like, I think he's a guy that maybe doesn't have – as much room to grow his stock as you think. Like, I think a guy like Doug McDermott was in a different spot. Remember, he was considering maybe going into the NBA draft after his junior year. But I thought, especially with moving to the Big East, so from the Valley to the Big East, he he had an opportunity to raise his draft stock because now he's going to be able to get to do it against, ah, it's one thing to do against Drake and Evansville and Illinois State. What are you going to do against Villanova and Georgetown and Seton Hall and St. John's, like, what are you going to do against him? Like, so he, he was, his situation was different. Again, so not, not every situation is the same. I look at him and I'm like, I don't know. I, I'm not sure how much he can improve his stock. I think he can improve as a player, but I think like the questions about him are going to be there no matter what. And the strengths and the things you like about him are kind of going to be there no matter what. So that's the second thing. And then the third thing is, there's a chance this team's going to be a lot different around him. So think about it. I mean, there's a chance Mitch Ballock, Damian Jefferson, Denzel Mahoney are all gone. So now Marcus is out there, and, and 
he might not, again, who knows, but he might not have as good a team around him, which could impact how he looks. I think that, what I just said, was something that went into someone like Isaiah Roby's decision a few years ago, leaving Nebraska early when Tim Miles was fired and Fred Hoiberg came in. I think Roby was kind of looking and he wasn't sure what the team would look like around him. And sometimes that can hurt you. So I think when you combine that with, with this, and, and what I'm about to say might be the biggest one, is Marcus's injury history. He's really, really, really been injury-plagued in college. I mean, think about it. Since arriving at Creighton, in three years, he's had a torn MCL. He had surgery on his hip to, re- to repair a torn labrum in his hip, and he broke his hand. Maybe Marcus Zagorowski is thinking, man, I've been hurt a lot. I've been, I've, I, I need to maybe capitalize and maximize on my body now and get paid now before I, I maybe get hurt again. I think that's what kind of went into Martin Krompel's decision a couple of years ago where he could have came back, but he tore his ACL what twice. Was it maybe even three times? He might've torn it three times. I know he tore it twice at Creighton, but he might've torn it three times where he's like, man, I'm, I've torn my ACL multiple times. I need to, before I go tear this thing again and really be done, I need to go get paid. And I can understand that. I can understand that. So, you know, there's certainly a lot to consider with Marcus Zagorowski's situation and decision that he has. My guess is, as of today, my guess is he leaves. He doesn't come back. But who knows? Again, I think he's. I think he really loves Greg McDermott. I think he really loves Creighton. But my my guess is he leaves. That's just my guess. And then there's Mitch Ballock. He's the one that I'm. I would say I'm. I'm the most unsure on. Because you you know if you've listened to my pod, you've listened. I've had Mitch Ballock on my podcast three times, and man, you could tell he loves Creighton. He loves Omaha. He loves being part of the Creighton and Omaha community. He loves Coach McDermott. There, there's a part of me that could see him wanting to just come back because he loves it here so much. But I do wonder if Marcus Zagorowski's decision would impact his because just like we talked about with Marcus, would Mitch want to come back if it's basically a brand new team? Now, again, Mitch seems like a guy that just loves playing college basketball and loves Creighton. But I'd have to imagine that he's got pro aspirations too. Which leads me to a few kind of broad, big picture things you got to think about when assessing these decisions from the outside looking in. Because obviously, selfishly, we all want to see all these guys come back, right? Who doesn't? Who wouldn't want to watch this team run it back again, right? Be awesome. But there are a lot of things you have to you, you got to consider when assessing these decisions from the outside looking in. First of all, these players' career careers have a shelf life. A professional basketball player's career has a shelf life. You got a window as a basketball player to maximize and make money playing basketball as a pro. See, it's different. Like, you can be a lawyer or a CPA or a a media member for 30 or 40 years. You you really got about five to 10 years at the most 
10 is at the most. If you if you got a if you have a 10-year pro career, I mean, thank Dr. James Naismith and the basketball gods above. But you really got about a I'll I'll be generous, 5 to 10-year window, generally speaking, to make money being a professional basketball player. And then it's then that's it. And the reality is for guys like Damian Jefferson, Denzel Mahoney, Marcus Zagorowski, and Mitch Ballock, that window's closing. They're all getting older. They're all about 21, 22, 23 years old. Their window's not closed, but it's closing. Obviously not closing right at this moment, but it's closing. So you got to think about that. But here are two things that make these players that we are talking about Like, there are two things that could really impact their decisions to a certain extent. I'll be honest, I don't think, this is just me, and I think the world of these guys, but I don't think, I don't think those four guys are NBA guys. That's just me. Some of y'all might feel different. Some scouts might feel different. I think, I think Marcus Zagorowski is the closest, but it could be tough for him. So what I'm saying is the reality is I think, I think, what are we really talking about here? I think what we're talking about is a professional career overseas, which can be lucrative and be very good for a lot of people. I think for guys like Damian Jefferson, Denzel Mahoney, Mitch Ballock, for the most part, those two guys are looking at playing in Europe. And here's the thing you got you to you, you think about. I've talked to a handful of people plugged into p- professional basketball overseas. And it's a disaster right now because of COVID. COVID has crushed a lot of those leagues. And a lot of, the, a lot of those leagues overseas in Europe all stuff, are either completely shut down because of COVID or are greatly altered. So the overseas market and the overseas situation professionally for basketball is not what it usually is right now. The money's not the same. The opportunities aren't the same. The amount of roster spots aren't the same. It's not as good as it's been. So would staying another year in college and letting some of the recovery process unfold for the overseas professional leagues be smart? Maybe. And then the other thing to consider is the looming name, image, and likeness rule that could pass for college sports. No one really knows what that timetable is, but there's a chance that the name, image, likeness stuff could get passed and you now have guys that can go make money off themselves for endorsements, all that stuff in college. I mean, how much money would a guy like Mitch Ballock make in Omaha if he was granted the ability to make money off his his name, image, and likeness? Endorsements, being a spokesperson, all that. Same thing with Marcus Zagorowski. I mean, I'm not saying they're going to be like, you know, Kim Kardashian or anything like that, you know. It's like you're going to get like Marcus standing on a court like holding a protein powder and he's going to be making, you know, seven figures. But, you know, they can make a decent amount of money. I mean, let's be honest. You remember when you were in college? Man, if I had, like, any money in my pocket, I was like, man, shoot. Let's do it, man. I'm the man. It goes Warren Buffett than me. <laughs> you know? So could they potentially make good enough money that they think, okay, 
Overseas market is not good right now. Name, image, likeness, just granted in college basketball. I can stay in Omaha, make some money, play for Creighton for another year, then maybe go overseas in a, in a year when the market in, in Europe is much better. I mean, maybe. Maybe. Again, I think this, what I'm talking about, this, like this thing is more about Mitch to me. But it's just food for thought with with all the stuff I'm talking about to, to kind of keep in mind. So, you know, again, to go back, I think it was William that emailed this. You know, gun, gun to my head. I Gun to my head, I think all those guys are probably gone. I think Damian Jefferson, Denzel Mahoney, Marcus Zagorowski, Mitch Ballack all move on and pr- pursue professional basketball opportunities. But you never know. So, we'll see. We'll see. So there you go. And we'll wrap it up there. Appreciate everybody listening to the podcast, downloading the podcast, supporting the podcast. Remember, you know, support support those that support this podcast. Runza, Pella, White Castle. Make sure you are uh, are you you're supporting those people. Uh, they're they're very good to me, and I and I really really greatly appreciate them being uh, on board with this podcast. And remember, just like. I did today. You can uh, you can you can send me emails. Anything that's on your mind, Nick at nickba.com. That's Nick at nickba.com. And again, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Click that subscribe button. It helps me out while you're there. Leave a five star rating and a review. All right, my thanks to Pella. If you're thinking about a new window or a new door, now is the time. Check them out online on the web at pellaomaha.com. That's pellaomaha.com. And uh, my thanks to my good friends at Runza. Best fries on the planet. Great burgers. Cheese Runza, delicious. The food is simply fantastic. Runza makes it all better. A Huda Media Production.